Chapter Nine, Section Three of the History of Mister Polly by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adrian Pretzelis. Chapter Nine, Section Three. Next morning, about half past ten, Mister Polly found himself seated under a clump of fir trees by the roadside, and about three miles and a half from the Potwell Inn. He was by no means sure whether he was taking a walk to clear his mind, or leaving that threat-marred paradise for good and all. His reason pointed a lean, unhesitating finger along the latter course. After all, the thing was not his quarrel. That agreeable, plump woman—agreeable, motherly, comfortable as she might be—wasn't his affair that child with the mop of black hair who combined so magically the charm of mouse and butterfly and flitting bird who was daintier than a flower and softer than a peach was no concern of his good heavens what were they to him nothing uncle jim of course had a claim a sort of claim if it came to duty and chucking up this attractive, indolent, observant, humorous, tramping life, there were those who had a right to him, a legitimate right, a prior claim on his protection and chivalry. Why not listen to the call of duty and go back to Miriam now? He had had a very agreeable holiday. And while Mr. Polly sat thinking these things as well as he could, he knew that if only he dared to look up, the heavens had opened, and a clear judgment on his case was written across the sky. He knew, he knew now as much as a man can know of life, he knew he had to fight or perish. Life had never been so clear to him before. It had always been a confused, entertaining spectacle. He had responded to this impulse and that, seeking agreeable and entertaining things, evading difficult and painful things. Such is the way of those who grow up to a life that has neither danger nor honour in its texture. He had been muddled and wrapped about and entangled like a creature born in the jungle who has never seen sea or sky. Now he had come out of it, suddenly into a great exposed place. It was as if God and heaven waited over him, and all the earth was expectation. "'Not my business,' said Mr. Polly, speaking aloud. "'Where the devil do I come in?' And again, with something between a whine and a snarl in his voice, "'Not my blasted business.' His mind seemed to have divided itself into several compartments each with its own particular discussion, busily in progress, and quite regardless of the others. One was busy with the detailed interpretation of the phrase, Kick you ugly. There's a sort of French wrestling in which you use and guard against feet. Watch the man's eye, and as his foot comes up, grip, and over he goes, at your mercy, if you use the advantage right. But how do you use the advantage rightly? When he thought of Uncle Jim, 
the inside feeling of his body faded away rapidly into blank discomfort. Old cadger! She hadn't no business to drag me into her quarrels. Ought to go to the police and ask for help. Dragging me into a quarrel that don't concern me. Wish I've never set eyes on the rotten inn. The reality of the case arched over him like the vault of the sky, as plain as the sweet blue heavens above and the wide spread of hill and valley about him. Man comes into life to seek and find his sufficient beauty, to serve it, to win and increase it, to fight for it, to face anything and dare anything for it, counting death as nothing so long as the dying eyes still turn to it, and fear and dullness and indolence and appetite, which indeed are no more than fear's three crippled brothers who make ambushes and creep by night, are against him, to delay him, to hold him off, to hamper and beguile and kill him in that quest. He had but to lift his eyes to see all that as much a part of his world as the driving clouds and the bending grass. But he had kept himself downcast, a grumbling, inglorious, dirty, fattish little tramp, full of dreads and quivering excuses. "'Why the hell was I ever born?' he said, with the truth almost winning him. "'What do you do?' when a dirty man who smells gets you down and under in the dust and dirt with a knee below your diaphragm and a large hairy hand squeezing your windpipe tighter and tighter in a quarrel that isn't properly speaking yours if i had a chance against him protested mr polly it's no good you see said mr polly he stood up as though his decision was made and was for an instant still struck by doubt. There lay the road before him, going this way to the east and that to the west. Westward, one hour away now, was the Potwell Inn. Already things might be happening there. Eastward was the wise man's course, a road dipping between hedges to a hop-garden and a wood, and presently no doubt reaching an inn, a picturesque church, perhaps, a village and fresh company, the wise man's course. Mr. Polly saw himself going along it, and tried to see himself going along it with all the self-applause a wise man feels, but somehow it wouldn't come like that. The wise man fell short of happiness for all his wisdom. The wise man had a paunch and round shoulders, and red ears, and excuses. It was a pleasant road, and why the wise man should not go along it, merry and singing, full of summer happiness, was a miracle to Mr. Polly's mind. But confound it! The fact remained, the figure went slinking. Slinking was the only word for it and would not go otherwise than slinking. He turned his eyes westward, as if for an explanation. And if the figure was no longer ignoble, the prospect was appalling. 
"'One kick in the stomach would settle a chap like me,' said Mr. Polly. "'Oh, God!' cried Mr. Polly, and lifted his eyes to heaven, and said for the last time in that struggle, "'It isn't my affair!' And, so saying, he turned his face towards the Potwell Inn. He went back, neither halting nor hastening in his pace after this last decision, but with a mind feverishly busy. "'If I get killed, I get killed. And if he gets killed, I get hung. Don't seem just, somehow. Don't suppose I shall just frighten him off.' <laughs> the private war between Mr. Polly and Uncle Jim for the possession of the Potwell Inn fell naturally into three chief campaigns. There was, first of all, the great campaign which ended in the triumphant eviction of Uncle Jim from the inn premises. Then came next, after a brief interval, the futile invasions of the premises by Uncle Jim that culminated in the Battle of the Dead Eel, and after some months of involuntary truce there was the last supreme conflict of the night's surprise. Each of these campaigns merits a section to itself. Mr. Polly entered the inn discreetly. He found the plump woman seated in her bar, her eyes astare, her face white and wet with tears. "'Oh, God!' she was saying over and over again. "'Oh, God!' The air was full of a spiritous reek and on the sanded boards in front of the bar were the fragments of a broken bottle and an overturned glass. She turned her despair at the sound of his entry, and despair gave place to astonishment. "'You come back,' she said. "'Rather,' said Mr. Polly. "'He's mad drunk and looking for her.' "'Where is she?' "'Locked upstairs. Haven't you sent to the police?' "'No one to send.' "'I'll see to it,' said Mr. Polly. "'Out this way?' she nodded. He went to the crinkly-paned window and peered out. Uncle Jim was coming down the garden path towards the house, his hands in his pockets, singing hoarsely. Mr. Polly remembered afterwards with pride and amazement that he felt neither faint nor rigid. He glanced round him seized a bottle of beer by the neck as an improvised club, and went out by the garden door. Uncle Jim stopped, amazed. His brain did not instantly rise to the new posture of things. "'You!' he cried, and stopped for a moment. "'You! Scoot!' "'Your job,' said Mr. Polly, and advanced some paces. Uncle Jim stood swaying with wrathful astonishment, and then darted forward with clutching hands. Mr. Polly felt that if his antagonist closed he was lost, and smoked with all his force at the ugly head before him. Smash went the bottle, and Uncle Jim staggered, half-stunned by the blow, and blinded with beer. The lapses and leaps of the human mind are forever mysterious. Mr. Polly had never expected that bottle to break. In the instant he felt disarmed and helpless. Before him was Uncle Jim, infuriated and evidently still coming on, and for defence was nothing but the neck of a bottle. 
For a time our Mr. Polly has figured heroic. Now comes the fall again. He sounded abject terror. He dropped that ineffectual scrap of glass and turned and fled round the corner of the house. Bottles! came the thick voice of the enemy behind him, as one who accepts a challenge, and bleeding but indomitable, Uncle Jim entered the house. Bottles! he said, surveying the bar. Fighting with bottles! I'll show him fighting with bottles! Uncle Jim had learned all about fighting with bottles in the reformatory home. Regardless of his terror-stricken aunt, he ranged among the bottled beers, and succeeded after one or two failures in preparing two bottles to his satisfaction by knocking off the bottoms and gripping them dagger-wise by the necks. So prepared he went forth again to destroy Mr. Polly. Mr. Polly, freed from the sense of urgent pursuit, had halted behind the raspberry canes and rallied his courage. The sense of Uncle Jim victorious in the house restored his manhood. He went round by the outhouses to the riverside, seeking a weapon, and found an old paddle-boat hook. With this he smote Uncle Jim as he emerged by the door of the tap. Uncle Jim, blaspheming dreadfully, and with dire stabbing intimations in either hand, came through the splintering paddle like a circus-rider through a paper hoop and once more Mr. Polly dropped his weapon and fled. A careless observer, watching him sprint round and round the inn in front of the lumbering and reproachful pursuit of Uncle Jim, might have formed an altogether erroneous estimate of the issue of the campaign. Certain compensating qualities of the very greatest military value were appearing in Mr. Polly even as he ran. If Uncle Jim had strength and brute courage, and the rich, toughening experience a reformatory home affords, Mr. Polly was nevertheless sober, more mobile, and with a mind now stimulated to an almost incredible nimbleness, so that he had not only gained on Uncle Jim, but thought what use he might make of his advantage. The word strategious flamed red across the tumult of his mind. As he came round the house for the third time, he darted suddenly into the yard, swung the door to behind himself, and bolted it, seized the zinc pig's pail that stood by the entrance to the kitchen, and had it neatly and resolutely over Uncle Jim's head as he came belatedly round the outhouse on the other side. One of the splintered bottles jabbed Mr. Polly's ear. At the time it seemed of no importance, and then Uncle Jim was down and writhing dangerously and noisily upon the yard tiles, with his head still in the pig-pail and his bottles gone to splinters, and Mr. Polly was fastening the kitchen door against him. "'Can't go on like this for ever,' said Mr. Polly, whooping for breath, and selecting a weapon from among the brooms that stood behind the kitchen door. Uncle Jim was losing his head. He was up and kicking the door, and bellowing unamiable proposals and invitations, so that a strategist emerging silently by the tap-door could locate him without difficulty, steal upon him unawares, and— 
But before that felling blow could be delivered, Uncle Jim's ear had caught a footfall, and he turned. Mr. Polly quailed and lowered his broom, a fatal hesitation. "'Now I've got you!' cried Uncle Jim, dancing forward in a disconcerting zigzag. He rushed to close, and Mr. Polly stopped him neatly, as if it were a miracle, with the head of the broom across his chest. Uncle Jim seized the broom with both hands. "'Let go!' he said, and tugged. Mr. Polly shook his head, tugged, and showed pale, compressed lips. Both tugged. Then Uncle Jim tried to get round the end of the broom. Mr. Polly circled away. They began to circle about one another, both tugging hard, both intensely watching for the slightest initiative on the part of the other. Mr. Polly wished brooms were longer, twelve or thirteen feet, for example. Uncle Jim was clearly for shortness in brooms. He wasted breath in saying what was to happen shortly, sanguinary, oriental soul-blenching things, when the broom no longer separated them. Mr. Polly thought he had never seen an uglier person. Suddenly Uncle Jim flashed into violent activity, but alcohol slows movement, and Mr. Polly was equal to him. Then Uncle Jim tried jerks, and for a terrible instant seemed to have the broom out of Mr. Polly's hands. But Mr. Polly recovered it with the clutch of a drowning man. Then Uncle Jim drove suddenly at Mr. Polly's midriff, but again Mr. Polly was ready and swept him round in a circle. Then suddenly a wild hope filled Mr. Polly. He saw the river was very near the post to which the punt was tied not three yards away. With a wild yell he sent the broom home into his antagonist's ribs. "'Whoosh!' he cried, as the resistance gave. "'Oh, goo!' said Uncle Jim, going backwards helplessly. And Mr. Polly thrust hard and abandoned the broom to the enemy's despairing clutch. "'Splash!' Uncle Jim was in the water, and Mr. Polly had leapt like a cat aboard the ferry punt and grasped the pole. Up came Uncle Jim, spluttering and dripping. You—unprofitable matter, and printing it would lead to a censorship of novels—you know I got a weak chest. The pole took him in the throat and drove him backward and downwards. Let go! cried Uncle Jim, staggering and with real terror in his once awful eyes. Splash! Down he fell backwards into a frothing mass of water, with Mr. Polly jabbing at him. Underwater he turned round and came up again, as if in flight, towards the middle of the river. Directly his head reappeared, Mr. Polly had him between the shoulders and under again, bubbling thickly. A hand clutched and disappeared. It was stupendous. Mr. Polly had discovered the heel of Achilles. Uncle Jim had no stomach for cold water. The broom floated away, pitching gently on the swell. Mr. Polly, 
infuriated with victory, thrust Uncle Jim under again, and drove the punt round on its chain in such a manner that when Uncle Jim came up for the fourth time, and now he was nearly out of his depth, too buoyed up to walk, and apparently nearly helpless, Mr. Polly, fortunately for them both, could not reach him. Uncle Jim made the clumsy gestures of those who struggle insecurely in the water. "'Keep out!' said Mr. Polly. Uncle Jim, with a great effort, got a footing, emerged until his armpits were out of the water, until his waistcoat buttons showed, one by one, till scarcely two remained, and made for the camp-sheeting. "'Keep out!' cried Mr. Polly and leapt off the punt and followed the movement of his victim along the shore. "'I'll tell you I've got a weak chest,' said Uncle Jim, moistly. "'This ain't fair fighting,' said Uncle Jim, almost weeping, and all his terrors had gone. "'Keep out,' said Mr. Polly, with an accurately poised pole. "'I'll tell you I've got to land, you fool,' said Uncle Jim with a sort of despairing wrathfulness, and began moving downstream. "'You keep out,' said Mr. Polly, in parallel movement. "'Don't you ever land on this place again!' Slowly, argumentatively, and reluctantly, Uncle Jim waded downstream. He tried threats, he tried persuasion. He even tried a belated note of pathos. Mr. Polly remained inexorable, if in secret a little perplexed as to the outcome of the situation. "'This cold's getting to my marrow,' said Uncle Jim. "'You want cooling. You keep out in it,' said Mr. Polly. They came round the bend into sight of Nicholson's Eight, where the backwater runs down to the Potwell Mill, and there, after much parley and several feints, Uncle Jim made a desperate effort, and struggled into clutch of the overhanging osiers on the island, and so got out of the water, with the mill-stream between them. He emerged dripping and muddy, and vindictive. "'By gore,' he said, "'I'll skin you for this.' "'You keep out, or I'll do worse for you,' said Mr. Polly. The spirit was out of Uncle Jim for the time and he turned away to struggle through the osiers towards the mill, leaving a shining trail of water among the green-grey stems. Mr. Polly returned slowly and thoughtfully to the inn, and suddenly his mind began to bubble with phrases. The plump woman stood at the top of the steps that led up to the inn door to greet him. "'Law!' she cried as he drew near. "'Hasn't he killed you?' "'Do I look like it?' said Mr. Polly. "'But where's Jim?' "'Gone off. He was mad, drunk, and dangerous. I put him in the river. That toned down his alkalacious frenzy. I gave him a bit of a doing altogether. "'Hasn't he hurt you?' "'Not a bit of it.' "'Then what's all that blood beside your ear?' Mr. Polly felt. "'Quite a cut.' Funny how one overlooks things, heated moments. He must have done that when he jabbed about with those bottles. Hello, Kiddy, you venturing downstairs again? 
ain't he killed you asked the little girl well i wish i'd seen more of the fighting didn't you all i saw was you running round the house and uncle jim after you there was a little pause i was leading him on said mr polly someone shouting at the ferry she said right o but you won't see any more of uncle jim for a bit we've been having a bit of a conversazione about that i believe it is uncle jim said the little girl then he can wait he turned round and listened for the words that drifted across from the little figure on the opposite bank so far as he could judge uncle jim was making an appointment for the morrow he replied with a defiant movement of the punt pole the little figure was convulsed for a moment and then went on its way upstream fiercely so it was that the first campaign ended in an insecure victory end of section three